welcome to the Paradigm Coffee Podcast, where every cup has a story. I'm your host, Grand Store. Every episode focuses on a new coffee roast, where I unpack the story of where your coffee came from and introduce you to a new way of experiencing coffee. To get the most out of this podcast, it's best to listen with a freshly brewed cup of today's featured coffee, which you can get at ParadigmCoffeeRoasters.com. Hey everyone, so with this recent outbreak of the COVID-19 coronavirus and the financial collapse that followed, I last week I put out a little Facebook post about the importance of being proactive during this unprecedented time. I was then flooded with a bunch of messages on just a bunch of different financial questions from what investing platforms to use to where to even start. So I thought it might be beneficial if I took a break from talking about coffee for a little bit and put out this new off-topic episode that just focused on investing principles during this unique time. In this episode, I'm going to first talk about what all is happening in the financial markets presently and why it's important for you to start investing now. But then I'm going to take a step back and actually explain how investing works from an introductory level. So then once we know how investing works and why now is important to start investing, I'll then lay down the framework about how you can start investing with the resources that are available now. Ever since the number of reported cases in Italy escalated in February 24th, the alarm bells have gone off in the financial markets that has caused one of the sharpest declines in history. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, the historical benchmark for the stock market, hit its all-time high in February 12th. By March 16th, it had lost 31%. To put that in perspective, During the Great Recession, it took almost exactly a year to lose 30%, from October 9, 2007 to October 6, 2008. And the fastest 30% drop we've seen in the last 30 years took 51 days, while this current drop only took 33 days. Every day has just been crazy swings back and forth in the market, as one day it'll crash down and then the very next day it'll swing right back up. It's moving so fast that whatever market update I give here is just going to be outdated by the time you're listening to this. The market is so volatile because we still don't know how severe the threat really is yet and what's the global position in combating this pandemic. We are just now starting to get large sets of testing kits in the US and investors are desperate for some form of concrete data that we can stand on. But until then, every little report is having a disproportionate impact on the market. But even when we get this information and we start to see the pandemic is being contained, that doesn't mean this is the end of the crisis for the financial markets. COVID-19 is an earthquake and it's shaking the foundation of civilization. But it's also creating these aftershocks that are making its way across the ocean that we can't see yet. Soon there will be tidal waves crashing in, which are the upcoming quarterly financial reports and unemployment data that will be released in the next few months. Since much of the economic engine is being shut down across the country, we're all currently in survival mode, and businesses are having to take emergency lines of credit just to remain solvent. And many in the service industry are already laying off workers. We've lost 30% from our all-time high last month. So how much does the stock market need to gain to get back to where it was? You may think it's 30% since, well, we lost 30%, but actually it's 43%. That may be counterintuitive, but here's a simple example to explain that math. If you had $100 and now it becomes $50, how much of a loss was that? 50%. But what is a 50% increase from $50? It's only $25. 
In order to get back to $100 from $50, we need to gain $50, which is a 100% increase. So if we assume that we're at least going to return back to where we were in the near future, then whatever we're putting in now has huge growth potential for the long term. The temptation though is to try to pull the trigger at the perfect time. If we think the market is going to keep going down in the next few weeks, then we may want to wait until we hit the bottom and then ride all that growth back up. But we won't know what the bottom is until we've already passed it. If we could know when the market is going to hit the bottom and start recovering, then everybody would just wait until then. But in reality, we're not going to know where the bottom is until 6 to 12 months later when we're able to look back at the data. It's like the market is a V-shape. We're on the left side right now and it's sloping down, but we can't see that right side of the V where it starts to slope back up. We know that eventually it's going to slope back up, but we don't know when it will. So this is my recommendation with all of this. We know that the market is severely down from what it historically has been at, and so that makes this a great time to start investing. But it's also very likely that the market is going to go down even further in the next month or so. So we can account for that without having to dive into speculation though. If we believe that the market is V-shaped right now, and we know that we're on the left part that is going down, then I would say of the money that you're intending investing, invest about 40% of it right now. Then check back in a few weeks, or if some crazy news comes out. If the market is continuing to drop, and it's dropped more than 10% from when you invested last time, then invest another 20%. We may still be on the left side of that V-shape, but we're definitely closer to the bottom now. For the final 40%, I would be very conservative with that. Just wait on that and just see what's happening. And it may be a few months, who knows, maybe it's even a year, depending on how volatile this market is. But once you start seeing more days of growth and it's, it's trending upward, that may be a sign that we have passed that bottom and now it's starting to come on the right side of that V-shape. And so that might finally be the time to start investing the final 40%. There's a lot of flexibility here in timing because of all the uncertainty. But by breaking up the investments over different times, we can take practical steps to make the most profit without diving into speculation. This may all sound quite intimidating if you've never invested before. But don't worry, I'll break down much of these concepts shortly. But before I do, I want to share a personal example of why this topic is so important. During the financial collapse of 2008, I wanted to start investing, but I didn't know where to start. I was afraid of what I didn't know, and I felt that I was just jumping into shark-infested waters with an open wound. I kept waiting until I understood how investing works, but I just kept stalling. Then finally, in February of 2010, I realized the principle that in the long run, the market will return back to normal. And by that time, any company that was still around would recover as well. So I took the $1,400 I had saved and I just went and bought stocks of companies I liked. No deep analysis, I just thought that these seemed like good companies. I put most of my money into Apple stock, but I also bought shares of Starbucks, Dr. Pepper, Chipotle, Boeing, Under Armour, and most notably, Amazon. I bought one share of Amazon for $127. And 10 years later, it was worth $2,100. Before the market crashed last month, my $1,400 investment was worth more than $13,000. Even with the market down, that investment is still worth $9,260 as of today. That's the kind of opportunity we have here. I invested without knowing much about what I was even doing, and I didn't even invest at the perfect time. The bottom of that V-shape in the market during the recession was actually 11 months earlier in March of 2009. By the time I invested, the market had already gained back 53% from the bottom. 
I say all this because I want to show that you don't need to hit a bullseye here in order to recover well in this market. I missed out on a large part of that recovery, but still made significant gains. But let's now turn to fundamentals. If you haven't been investing yet, this will be critical information to help you make sense of everything on an introductory level, at least enough to know what you're getting into. Let's first talk about the hidden driver of investing, compound growth. This mathematical concept is responsible for how your credit card debt keeps getting bigger, but it's also how Jeff Bezos has become the richest person in the world. It's the source of turning small actions into huge results, where two components are key, growth rate and time. Here's my favorite example of this. Imagine you had a sheet of paper that was infinitely long. So paper quantity is not going to be a limiting factor here, but it's just a normal sheet of paper. Now imagine you took that sheet of paper and folded it over. How tall would it be? Well, it wouldn't even be as thick as a paperclip. But what happens if you fold that over 50 more times? How tall would that paper stand now? I'll give you a few options. Option A, four feet. So the size of a dresser cabinet. Option B, 20 feet. About the size of a full-grown giraffe. Or option C, 1,450 feet, which is approximately the height of the Empire State Building. Okay, so I had just mentioned that this is an important concept. And while it's probably quite absurd to think of a stack of paper being as tall as a skyscraper, you probably chose option C, and you would be wrong. Sorry, I cheated because uh, there's actually an option D, which is 138 million miles, which is about the distance to the sun, which is the correct answer. If you don't believe me, just calculate 0 0.004 times two to the power of 50 and then convert that total in from inches to miles. Cool math trick, but what does this have to do with investing? Well, compounding growth plays a role in this paper folding trick. The paper represents the initial investment, and every fold represents the growth of that investment. So in this ideal concept, each time we fold represents one year of growth. And since each time we fold we're doubling the size, it means we're actually getting a 100% annual growth rate. So in theory, if this was an investment, and if we just put in half a penny in, but we still got a 100% return every year, by the time we reach 50 years, it'd be worth over $5.6 trillion, which is obviously unrealistic. But is it? Remember when I said that I bought a share of Amazon for $127, and then it was worth over $2,000? Well, Jeff Bezos also owns shares of Amazon, and a lot of them. Back in 1997, Amazon shares were selling for $18 a share, which Jeff Bezos owned 60 million shares. Since he created the company, he didn't have to buy all those shares, but he essentially just created them. So in a way, it is actually like the paper concept. But let's now look at the source of all of this financial growth. Stocks. I've been talking a lot about stocks here, but many people don't even know what they actually are or what the stock market is. I won't go into too much depth here. But what a stock is, is essentially an ownership title. Every company has an owner, or owners, and to help measure how much ownership each person is given is by the amount of stock they have in that company. Each unit of stock is called a share. So if the total ownership of a company is split into 10 shares, and if one individual has six shares of stock in that company, then they have a majority ownership of that company. Since each share of stock is a percentage of ownership, if someone owns more than 50% of all the shares in that company, 
then if a decision's ever been put to a vote by the owners, then the one who has the six shares will always have the final decision. On a larger scale though, large businesses don't just have 10 shares of stock ownership in their company, but rather it's hundreds of millions of shares. The ownership of Amazon in particular is split among 498 million shares currently. So if you own a share of Amazon, then you currently own about one half billionth of Amazon. But what that also means is that even with those 60 million shares that Jeff Bezos has, and even though he created the company and is the CEO of that company, he actually doesn't have control of Amazon. If all the other owners voted that they wanted a new CEO of Amazon, they could fire Bezos from his own company, even though no single person has more shares of Amazon than Jeff Bezos. Since stocks are about ownership, that means that you get a benefit from the profit made by the company as well. When a company makes a profit, there are two things they can do with that money. They can either reinvest it into the company to expand operations, hire more workers, or buy a new building, or they can pass those profits on to the owners. When a company decides to make a payout to its owners, this is what is called a dividend. So just by owning a share in a company, you could be earning money every year just from the company's profits. But what about the stock market? Well, if stocks are just ownership titles, how do we get them? You're going to have to pay someone to sell that ownership to you, but for how much? In theory, this can happen all in a case-by-case -case basis. If you owned a share of Amazon and I wanted to own a share of Amazon, I could contact you and ask you how much I would need to pay you in order for you to give up your ownership of Amazon. But since there are hundreds of millions of shares of Amazon out there, and there are millions of people buying and selling these shares from each other every single day, we need a centralized network to coordinate all these transactions. Because think about it, what are the odds our paths are going to cross, and I'm going to know that you have a share of Amazon and that you're willing to sell it? The stock market becomes this central hub where all these transactions are taking place. Everyone who's wanting to buy Amazon and everyone who's wanting to sell Amazon go to the market and make their offer. But how much should a share of Amazon be worth? That's the second feature of the stock market. Since we now have all buyers and sellers meeting virtually in one place, we now have thousands of offers being made to buy and sell at any given minute. The stock market is taking in all these offers and is essentially finding the average price between all of these offers, which then becomes the price. But this price is always moving around based on all the offers that are coming in. If you wanted to sell your share of Amazon and you wanted $3,000 for it, but the price currently for Amazon is $2,000, then nobody's going to be willing to pay you $3,000 for that share because they can go to anybody else who's willing to sell for $2,000 and get it from them. But let's say $2,000 is still too low for you. So you decide that if someone was willing to pay you $2,100, you'd be willing to sell it then. Then let's say that all those who have shares of Amazon see that people are buying shares at $2,000 and they go, maybe this is a good time to sell, but you know what? I, I'm willing to, to wait a little bit. If it gets to like $2,100 as well, then I'll sell it. So now all those people who have been willing to spend $2,000 to buy Amazon can't find anybody to sell at $2,000. They're all waiting at $2,100. So now the price is going to jump up to $2,100. That is how the market sets the price for a particular stock. But when I talk about the stock market going up or down, like when I was saying earlier how the stock market has gone down by 30%, that is based on a measure of all the companies that are in the stock market. But since there are thousands of companies that are being sold millions of times every single day, 
it's quite difficult to measure how they all are doing at the same time. And for that, we actually followed a select few of companies that are used as benchmarks for how the market is doing as a whole. And these are what is called indexes. The most famous index, and the one that is most commonly used as representative of the whole market, is called the Dow Jones Industrial Average. This index follows 30 of the largest companies from different industry sectors. By following these industry leaders, we can get a pretty good picture of how most businesses are doing as a whole. But having 30 companies represent the thousands of companies out there does seem a bit inaccurate. And so the index that is more relied upon by investors is called the S&P 500, which follows 500 of the largest U.S. companies. We almost have all the essentials to start investing here, but we still have to cover one more major topic, diversification. You've probably heard the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, that is crucial here. Because what if you invested in a company and you chose wrong? Like, really wrong. Like, what if the company you invested in had really promising financial growth metrics and then it comes out that the company's been lying about its financials and fraudulently reporting revenue when the sales haven't even happened? What happens when the company files for bankruptcy and the share price that you bought at 90 goes to zero? You'd lose it all. This isn't even much of a hypothetical scenario because this very thing happened in 2001. Anyone who's ever taken a business class has heard about the infamous Enron scandal. But to make things worse, Enron executives pushed hard on its employees to invest most of their retirement accounts into Enron stock. But when Enron went bankrupt, not only did 20,000 people lose their jobs, but most of them lost all of their retirement because their retirement was all tied up in Enron stock. That is an extreme example for why it's imperative to diversify your investing. If you had shares in 50 different companies and one of them happened to be Enron, sure you would lose some money, but it would only be a small loss because all your other investments would be there to compensate for it. But it's not just the number of stocks you have, it's also about the kind of stocks you have. If you had shares in 50 different oil producing companies and Elon Musk starts selling 20 million electric cars for $5,000, then everyone's gonna get rid of their gas powered cars which that means those 50 companies that you have, they're all oil producing companies, are all going down. So you need to diversify in different sectors. It means you need to get some big companies, some small companies, some international companies, or companies that are in different sectors like tech or healthcare and the like. But don't worry though, because diversification is easier to achieve more than ever now through investments that are called ETFs, which stands for Exchange Traded Funds. Remember how I talked about how we refer to the Dow Jones as this benchmark for the stock market as a whole? Well, an ETF is just a stock that holds other stocks of companies that are part of a particular index. So if I wanted to own stocks in all of the companies that are in the Dow Jones, that generally means I have to go out and buy stocks of all 30 companies individually. Or I could just buy an ETF that holds all the stocks that are part of the Dow Jones for one single price. The most famous ETF is called the SPY, SPY, and it follows the S&P 500 index. And as of today's recording, one share of this ETF will only cost $228. With this one ETF, I'll be able to own a little bit of 500 different companies all at once. If this all sounds familiar to you, you may recognize the term mutual fund, which is basically the same thing as an ETF, in that buying a mutual fund you're buying bits of many different companies all at once. 
Mutual funds have been around for a long time, but I don't focus on them for a few reasons, primarily due to high management fees and investment minimums. Many mutual funds have entry fees and they usually have a minimum requirement of about $1,000 just to start. So I think it's just generally easier and better to use ETFs. ETFs may be the key to diversification, but what ETFs should you get and how should you diversify with ETFs? This is where we've reached a point beyond general education and is now more subjective in that how you diversify depends on your goals and risk tolerances. The key is trying to get your investments to be uncorrelated so that if one part starts going down, your whole portfolio it doesn't go down with it. Which goes beyond just the stocks that we talked about before. This is also with bonds and commodities and even gold. And each of these types of investments have ETFs as well. How you decide to weigh your portfolio with all of these investments depends on one critical question. How much risk are you willing to take in the short term in order to possibly earn more money? If you're willing to lose some money today with the much higher probability of earning more money 20 plus years from now, then you'll want to have a larger portion of your investments in stocks. But if you want more stability and don't like the idea of possibly losing half of your account value in some years, then buying more bonds and gold will help with the stabilization of that. Okay, let's summarize what we've covered so far. We are in an unusual time presently with the financial collapse due to this COVID-19 coronavirus. We don't know how much more worse it's going to get, but we do know that now is a good time to start relative to how it was last month. By investing at different stages, we give ourselves a better chance at getting the lowest price for our investments without ever actually ever knowing ahead of time what will happen. We want to invest now because we want our investments to grow exponentially due to the stock's ability to compound in value. Stock shares are just units of ownership in a company, and the more valuable the company becomes, the more value the shares of stock that we own become more valuable. We use the stock market to buy and sell shares of stock, and by all of us meeting in one central location, allows for a singular price to emerge that helps buyers and sellers to agree on a sale. We want to diversify our investments so that we're not vulnerable to losing all of our money if a company we're investing in goes out of business, which the easiest and most effective way of doing that is by using ETFs. We then buy different ETFs in different sectors to spread out the risk according to our risk tolerance. Now for the final piece, how to start. This may all make sense in theory, but how do you actually put all this into place? It may still seem incredibly intimidating to decide where to put your money, but thankfully it's about to get a whole lot easier. Over the past decade, we've seen the introduction of a new kind of service called robo-advisors. They are smart portfolio builders that are designed by a team of investment analysts that automate the whole diversification process for you. All you have to do is answer a few questions about yourself, like what are your financial objectives and risk tolerances are. This then gets put through one of their algorithms that will provide an account mixture of ETFs that fits your own unique needs. Once you have the account set up, all you have to do is put the money in and they'll invest it into all of the ETFs for you. They also are incredibly cheap as well. Most of them generally charge only about a quarter to half a percent of assets managed per year. Which means that if you put $100 into the account, at the end of the year, 
they would only charge you a quarter to 50 cents. There are a bunch of robo-advisors out there, but I'll highlight my personal favorite, Betterment. Betterment is the largest independent robo-advisor in the market, and they currently manage over $16 billion in investments for clients. Setting up an account with them is incredibly easy. You should be able to have a full account set up and everything in less than 20 minutes. But what makes them my favorite is just the options I have for investing. And I just personally enjoy the ETFs that they chose for my portfolio compared to the other robo-advisors I've been trying out. The retirement portfolio I have with them is a 90-10 ratio of stocks to bonds, meaning that 90% of my portfolio is in stock ETFs while 10% is in bond ETFs. I also put on the social responsibility screener, which means that Betterment screens for companies that have a positive environmental, social, and governance characteristics that are included in my portfolio. My stock ETFs are evenly split between domestic U.S. stocks and international stocks, which most of the U.S. stocks are in large cap businesses. I just set it and forget it, and I can even set up an automatic deposit so that I don't even have to think about investing at all. If you're curious about trying it out, there's a referral code in the podcast description that will give you three months free. I'll stop there for now and just say that if you've been wanting to start investing for the future, now is the time. Yes, it is a scary time and everything's uncertain, but if you're not confident in where to start, then just start opening an account with a robo-advisor. All these concepts will make more sense when you're actually looking at your own portfolio with your own money. And these portfolios are pretty well constructed as well. I have about a quarter of my own investments in robo-advisor accounts currently, mostly because the majority of my money came from those stocks I invested back in 2010 and also in my 401k. But if you have some cash available, just take a small step forward in investing. Try to put it in like $100 and just see how it goes. It will take some time for things to grow, but believe me, 20 years from now, you'll be grateful that you started today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Paradigm Coffee Podcast. If you found this information useful and would like to support, please check out my website at paradigmcoffeeroasters.com and purchase some of the coffee I've been roasting. Also, I wanted to highlight some work that a friend of mine is doing. We all are feeling the effects of COVID-19, and that is especially true for students. Much of the educational resources has disappeared, and especially for low-income students, no longer have access to tutorship. My friend Kat Lewis is gathering a group of tutors together and putting on a free tutoring program for students in the Seattle area. To help support this, I'm donating 40% of the profits from my coffee sales to help fund this program. If you want to contribute as well, just click on the GoFundMe link in the podcast description. Until next time, I'm Grant Storr, and thanks for listening.